everybody. Welcome to the Musea Podcast. This is episode number 37, and I am Michael Howard, the founder and CEO of Musea. For this episode, I had the pleasure and honor of talking with commercial and fashion photographer Rodney Smith out of New York. Um, but real quick, before we get into the details of our conversation, uh, there's a couple things I want to mention. Uh, we've hit a pretty big bi- milestone this past weekend. It was the one-year birthday for the Museus store. And within that year, uh, you, the photographers that have used the Museus store have sold enough of their work that we've given enough money to water.org that 18 people um, will end up receiving clean water for life. And so that is something I'm extremely excited about um, and very proud of. Uh, It's been a crazy year, and I'm very grateful for all of you that have supported Musea in one way or another through using the store and selling your work or through tweeting about Musea or listening to the podcast, uh, joining me in conversations on the Musea blog, and just talking to me about photography in general through in-person meetings and and Skype sessions and just Twitter discussions um, and everything. Uh, It's been a really wonderful year for me, probably one of the best years of my life for uh, many different reasons. Um, But it's been a great start to this company, and I'm excited and grateful for uh, everybody that's shown interest in what I'm doing and uh, where this thing is headed. And so I just wanted to say a quick thank you to all of you. Also, I just want to touch on uh, the Musea Gathering is coming up. It is a little under three months away in New York City. And the purpose of the gathering is really to empower the next generation of photographers through education, community, and discussion. Um, I'm picking some of the best educators that I feel that are within specifically the wedding and portrait uh, genre. Uh, but not just the quality of teachers we have is important. What also is important of going to the gathering is the fact that you're going to connect uh, with other photographers that are like-minded and that um, are going to shape this industry for the next decade. Uh, I really feel that the decade that we are coming out of from 2002 to 2012 had this digital revolution um, there was just kind of this experimental and just a culture that I wasn't necessarily like really excited about, especially within the wedding and portrait industry. But this next generation and the next decade is something I'm extremely excited about. I feel like the industry is getting more mature and healthier and it's producing some amazing, amazing work. And I want the gathering to be an education event that will springboard and empower photographers, um, to lead us into this next 10 years. And so that's the point of the gathering. Uh, I also feel that there's a community that's built around Musea right now uh, that we've been building for the last uh, year or 18 months. And I think it's just time that all of us uh, start to meet up on a regular basis, whether it's once a year, once every six months in different parts of the country. And we come to, you know, meet all the people that we've talked with on Twitter and Facebook and uh, get to know each other in person uh, and also just learn from some amazing photographers that are within um, our industry and even outside of our industry eventually. So uh, please consider coming. Um, The New York City one is uh, February 26th through 7th, 28th. You can find all the details at museagathering.com. I'll be there. I'd love to meet you um, and get to know uh, all of you better. So 
on to the podcast with Rodney Smith. I'm so excited about this, and I'm just honored that he took uh, the time out of his busy schedule to chat with me. Um, if you're not familiar with Rodney, um, he's a huge figure uh, in the photography world and photo history. Uh, he's published four different art books. He has a Master of Divinity from Yale. He stuttered under Walker Evans and a bunch of other <coughs> photographers, even Ansel Adams, for a week. Uh, some of his clients, uh, commercial clients, include American Express and Starbucks. Um, oh, gosh, he shot for, like, Merrill Lynch and IBM and New York Stock Exchange. And some of his fashion uh, accounts include, like, W Magazine, Saks Fifth Avenue, Neiman Marcus, Ralph Lauren, uh, New York Times Magazine. He's shot pretty much anybody and everybody, and he's had numerous exhibitions. Um, in a lot of ways, this man is a living legend, and so it was, it was a great honor for me to uh, chat with him. So in this conversation, we talk about a lot about the meaning of his work and developing your vision. Uh, we talk some about the, the effect of fashion on women, which is very interesting, and uh, how he has overcome uh, low points in his career. So I think this is a podcast that you will love. And um, as always, thank you for listening. And if you like this podcast, please uh, share it with your friends on Twitter and Facebook. So thank you so much. Have a good day. Rodney, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm honored to speak with you. How are you? Fine, thank you. It's nice to talk with you as well. Appreciate it. Um, the first thing I would love to get into is uh, just the beginning of your introduction to photography um, and kind of basically just when you first were introduced to photography and just a brief overview, I guess, of your career and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Um, I'd be happy to do that. First of all, just sort of, I guess, slightly working back, I'm 65 years old, so I've been a photographer for 45 years. So um, I guess there's a fair amount of experience at that. And um, and I've gone through quite a bit um, as far as the changes in photography. Um, but going all the way back, probably the very first, I don't know, maybe a slightly unconscious inclination that I wanted to be a photographer started when I was 16 years old. And my father gave me a camera. I took a teen tour. That's what kind of popular when I was a young boy um, with, with other students my age. And we went around the United States, and then we went into Mexico. And um, my father gave me a camera for that trip. And um, on the, the, the Mexican part of the trip, we took a train from Nuevo Laredo, Texas, to Mexico City. I remember this actually quite well. And the train, there was a landslide across the tracks on the train, and the train stopped, and it was sort of, took about four days for them to clear the rocks from the tracks, and during those four days, basically the train was at a standstill, and we would get out off the train, or there were many young children from neighboring villages who would come by the train trying to sell everybody something, and 
um, I remember that I was really attracted to these young children who came to the train. I was like their faces. They were um, really interesting to me. And I took all these portraits of the, I mean, I was, if I was 16, they were probably, I don't know, 10 or 11 or 12, maybe even younger, maybe. And it was their faces that really um, appealed to me. And I remember when I got back after the tour was all over, my father looked at these pictures and uh, there were no pictures of my contemporaries on the trip who were my, you know, people from all over the country were my age, but there were all these pictures of, um, um, of Mexican children. And um, I remember my father being kind of discouraged and saying, why aren't there any pictures of children? I mean, of your, your contemporaries. But at that point I began to realize that, um, I was attracted to, to something, I guess, a little bit different than most most people. Um, and that was probably the very first, and I guess somewhat unconscious, that I said, inclination. The main kind of epiphany when I actually knew, I said, this, I want to be a photographer, was much later when I was in college, probably my senior, junior, I can't remember exactly whether it was my junior or senior year in college, and I was home for the holidays just around this time, actually, probably a little later in, in December. But um, I remember I went to the Museum of Modern Art, um, which had a permanent collection of photography. Um, I'm a New Yorker, and so I was home in Manhattan. And I'd been there many times before. And I don't know exactly what initiated me to go to this collection of pictures I had seen before, but I did. And I think the important part of this was that Edward Steichen was still the curator of photography at that point. And mm -hmm. I think his sensibilities were much closer to mine um, than maybe more contemporary curators. And um, he, um, he had, the permanent collection was composed of pictures of Gene Smith, Dorothea Lange, Margaret Burke White, Stieglitz, and Steichen. And I remember walking through this this gallery and thinking, having an epiphany. And I remember basically having it in front of a Gene Smith picture, Eugene Smith picture, and thinking, oh my God, I can do this. And this is what I want to do. And I think it's a, that's a fairly simplistic response to a very complicated question. But from that moment on, I knew that this is what I was going to do with my life. Now, I don't think I knew, I don't think it meant to me that I was going to copy the work of these people. I think what I realized, because I've thought about this a fair amount, I think what I realized at that moment was I, I could take my feelings and put them on a piece of paper. And I think that's what the revelation was to me, that I had all these anxieties and these fears and all these feelings, tremendously powerful feelings inside me, with a, without an outlet to express them. And I realized that photography was the perfect medium for me to do this. And from that moment on, and it was a number of years afterwards that I actually became a photographer, but from that moment on, I knew I wanted to be a photographer. Mm. And so you went to college to study photography, or did you study other? No, I, I um, was... Uh, in, in, in college, I was an English major, and then I became a religious studies major, and I um, was sort of both. I graduated with both, and then I went on to graduate school to study theology, actually, and uh, but also with the intention of taking half my credits in the photography program. But my degree was in theology. I wanted my degree to be in theology, not photography, and um, 
But I did, while I was in graduate school, singularly learn my craft. I spent a great deal of time, and the program at that time was really quite wonderful, um, learning um, the craft of photography. Um, we learned the zone system. Photography one was taught um, using the zone system. You had to use a large format camera, um, and it was a really great discipline. So I learned the craft, but I also learned what I, I, I developed a vision or I nurtured a vis, vision of what I wanted to say is while studying theology. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, and I probably, um, this is probably somewhat uncomfortable for a lot of people, I think, and I, I don't want to say this unequivocally that I think this is the case in most time, but it's very hard to nurture a vision studying the craft of photography. I think that the, one of the last places one would really learn to be a photographer is in an art school just studying photography. Now, mm-hmm. I know that's probably not a popular thing, but that's sort of how, what I believe. I think one has to have a vision, and how one nurtures and develops that vision, I think, is by, by doing something quite contradictory to the physical craft of making a picture. Yeah, I was going to ask you about... Um your study of theology and how the knowledge of that um, and studying that, how that influenced your work. Yeah, sure. I think, you know, I, I, I write this weekly blog, which is, I, I think is on its way to being actually published as an, sort of like a memoir of nonfiction. But mm-hmm. um, I think if you read the blog, I think in many ways, you'd have to probably read it over a period of time, but over many ways, I think how you would see how my theological interests or inclinations have permeated the picture-making process. It's probably not at all how people think. Um, um, I didn't study theology with any intention for looking for any answers to questions. I, I studied theology to, to sort of initiate the questions. Um, some 40 years later, I still don't have any answers, and, and I'm not sure I actually believe I could have them. But but what I really did love was learning how to ask the right questions. And that's that's what studying theology did, did for me. Now, what, what do I mean by that, asking the right questions? Well, I think theology or some of the issues that really were important to me were questions about human existence. Who are we? What do we stand for? How do we fit into this world around us? What is the nature of evil? What is the nature of good? What is the nature of man? And so it's all these questions about how the human being fits into the world and the surroundings around him. And those are still some of the prevalent themes, I think, that are really important in my work. So while I was studying the craft of photography, I was sort of, I was hope anyway, and I, I, think, it, I think correctly, I was nurturing this vision about or learning for, how to put form to my feelings intellectually so that I could sort of integrate the two when I actually began to make pictures. And I think it worked out. During the time of me doing this, I mean, I had tremendous disapproval and, um, I don't know, people were kind of aghast. Why are you doing this? Why are you wasting your time studying theology? You know, I was in my family, I was expected to do something more business-like or do something quite different. Um, and nobody, uh, except for my wife, that no one would give me any support. They all thought I was totally crazy. But I actually, and I probably couldn't articulate it exactly why I thought it was really important to do it. I just intuitively 
knew in my heart that this is what I wanted to do. And um, I, I'm actually very happy I did it. I don't have any regrets. Yeah. Uh, looking into your work, you know, specifically, and, and then we'll get into maybe some of the writing aspects of, of your blog, but, you know, I look at your images and some of the words and adjectives, I guess, that come to my mind are things like refined and charm, you know, classic, whimsical, romance, meticulous, and elegance, serene, beautiful, all those words. Those are all good words. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, where does that come from? Is it from your, your upbringing? I know it's a collection of things, but if you could try to pinpoint yeah. it a little bit, where does that come out of well, you from? Well, I, 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 I'm definitely of the school of thought that you sort of your present is definitely formed from your past. Um, and so I, I, I would definitely think that probably a, a great deal of it, if not I don't know, all of it, but a great deal of it derived from my upbringing. Um, my, my mother and father who are now both dead close to 40 years. Um, my mother 30 and my father 40 would be kind of, Shocking that there's still such a prevalent and powerful force in my life, but they are. And um, um, I, you know, I was my parents were very. My father was very affluent. He was a CEO and uh, some fashion companies. And I grew up sort of in a 19th century lifestyle and existence. Um, they were, you know, it's when I look, what it seemed quite normal and natural to me as a young boy. Now, when I look back on it, it seems you know, really from the 19th century. Um, and so there was this, although there was this mixture of things, there was this kind of real love of refined things. Things were always beautifully done. Everything was perfectly in its place. There was an order to everything. There were many people who were taking care of, you know, servants who made things perfect and beautiful. And even though part of me was rebellious against that, I always loved it. I mean, quite honestly, I did. I, not that I loved some of the accoutrements of it, but the, if you looked at it physically, I loved it. And it definitely had an effect on me. And I think my pictures represent the more positive aspects of my life. I don't think they, my upbringing, I mean, they, um, I'm not saying that at all they are, that's the way it was, because there was a lot of negative things to it, many negative things, perhaps even more negative things than positive things. But um, the pictures are, represent that world at its very finest. It's sort of like an affirmation of what can be, what a gentleman really, what the word gentleman, if you define it and you dissect it, you know, to a gentleman or a nobleman, it's sort of those things, if they really existed in the world, if there really were gentlemen and if there really were noblemen, it's not that it's impossible, but it's slightly out of reach. And um, that's sort of what I think my pictures are about, sort of how how does one sort of aspire to greatness? What You have this potential inside you, and how do you realize this? And um, I think that's sort of what the pictures are. Yeah. So when I was one last thing about that now I'm as I said 65. So when in the 60s, the very early 60s, when Kennedy was president, I was in high school. I was I think a junior in high school, and um, that era was you know there was like the last vestige of sort of uh, what I would refer to as elegance and grace 
and beauty in in a lot of things, not just fashion, which my father was very much a part of, but many things was still there was a world was holding on to it, and then the hippie movement, the anti-war movement in the 60s, it all sort of tore all that apart. But the early 60s, maybe up to 65 or something like that, 64, 65, were the last remnants of an era, like it was when Cary Grant and, um, and Audrey Hepburn and Leslie Caron and all, were still really popular. It was it was a slightly different era, and then everything changed in the by the by the 1970s. And the world mm. became a different place. Um, when I look at your images, <clears throat> and as you describe them, um, and it, it, I've been looking at them obviously for the past few days, as, as we've kind of been preparing for the podcast. And this morning, like right before I called you, um, one of the other things that struck me about your images is is they almost feel like snapshots of could be the the middle of like a short story or something like i feel like you could write yeah. springboard off of these images to some narrative of something and so it seems like you have a love for writing or reading and i didn't know if that was an influence in your images as well that ties in well it's funny i like that comment you know i hear that comment something like that quite often um that that you could tell a story from the pictures that you were sort of caught in the middle of the story and you're curious about what happened prior and afterwards. Mm. Um, I have to tell you, consciously anyway, when I'm taking the pictures, I'm not aware of that at all. Um, I, but I am kind of a literary soul. I've always, in every book I've ever done, there's always been writing. I've done four books, and every book has writing and photographs in it in one form or another. Um, and uh, I always been around writers. I, when I was very young, in college, before I decided I wanted to be a photographer, I thought I was going to be a novelist. But I, I, I had the sentiment, but not the skill. And I quickly realized that. So, um, But I guess writing has always um, been a part of me. So when you say that about the pictures, that's actually quite a compliment to me, because mm-hmm. I'm not aware of it. But if they do tell a story, uh, or there's or they're like a fragment of a story, that would be kind of a wonderful thing, and I would really like that. Although when I'm taking it, I'm not aware of that. Yeah, and you're not you're, so you're not like pre-planning like no this type of image pic- would fit. In this the type pictures of story. are taken completely spontaneously. I know this is one of the ironies to me uh, of a lot of sort of sets off a whole discrepancy about photography in general and modern photography. But all the pictures that was referred to as the lifestyle pictures of the last 10 years or 15 years are much more controlled and created. Even though they look like they're spontaneous and of the moment, they're much more created pictures than mine, which look very serene, controlled. My pictures, five seconds before I took the picture, I didn't know I was going to take that picture. Not in 100% of the instances, but at least 60, 70, or 80% of the time, the picture is completely spontaneous, and I may have set something up, and so, but I don't know what the what the end product's going to look like. And then all of a sudden, something somebody does something, or something happens, or the light changes, or it can be many things. And all of a sudden, I say, "Take the picture," and I take the picture, and I didn't know I was going to take that exact picture five seconds before I took it. Um, so I think that's kind of always been kind of interesting to me. 
that my, although my pictures look quite serene and controlled and um, like they were art-directed art um, or created under sort of very sort of um, rigid requirements, totally the opposite. Hmm. It's curious because obviously within your work you have a lot of figures, but then you also have a relationship with you know the scene or the landscape or whatever it is, um, and, and those obviously play off each other and have kind of a, a role. And so I was curious what came first for you, if you were first looking for the scene or the landscape, or if you're looking more of like the model and the clothing. No, I'm definitely always first looking for the location, which would be the landscape or the environment. <clears throat> once once I've found the environment, um, I can always make the pictures. Um, uh, there's... Um, you know, I was when I was very young. I was a landscape photographer, um, as well as shooting portraits. And then I think one of the great things that happened to me was I began to integrate the two together. Um, I began to put people into the landscape, um, which is a very different thing than placing somebody in front of something. Mm -hmm. I think most people take pictures in an environment, and they stick a figure or a person or a thing in front of something. And they refer to that, you know, as, I don't know, I, that term I can't stand, environmental portrait or whatever that is, I, mm -hmm. a term I really do not like. <laughs> um, but that, that's not the way I would operate. The person has to be sort of placed in an environment as part of it. And actually, it goes back to the previous question about the spontaneity of the, of the pictures. The reason why I can shoot these pictures so quickly is because I can very quickly get to this place where I think everything is right. I mean, almost instantaneously, I will know this is the place I need to make this picture. Now, there may be a few other places, too, but I'll start at this place that feels absolutely right to me. Um, but for me, the pictures are, are totally controlled or by the environment. That's why the location work for me is by far the hardest part of making pictures, is finding a location I like. Um, and then once I've found that, which is a really rigorous and very exhausting process, but once I but once I found this this location, I don't want to know what the picture is going to look like. I you know when I'm scouting it, it may be gray or rainy, or maybe it's sunny, and then the day of the shoot it's raining. Or I may look at it in the morning, and I may be there in the afternoon, and the light's totally different. So I never know what the picture is I'm going to make there, nor do I want to. I've never shot Polaroids in my life. I don't want to do any of that things. I just want to trust my instincts. And once I've found a place that seems appropriate or great, I'll say, I can make pictures here, and that's all I want to know, and then I'll go away until the, until the time I physically shoot the picture. Mm. What is, I mean, when you're looking at trying to find a location, your location scouting or whatever, I mean, is there some cues that you're looking for? Like, what is kind of the common denominator that you're, when you step into a place, you're like, ah, this is perfect? Well, you know, there are sometimes requirements about what I, I need to find, but yeah. the, the the probably it's the same thing no matter what I'm looking for, and that is a place that has a sense of history to it, mm. which is hard for me in America. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, I it's got to have a certain patina to it, and character to it, um, and um, the, sometimes it's the question of the light in the place, but it's 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 a whole thing. A landscape, it's just got to feel eccentric or original or special to me it's definitely my vision um 
but I think like if I'm looking for an interior place, there's kind of a characteristic that's involved that's in all the pictures, and that is it's got a certain history to it in depth. It's been sort of aged nicely. Um, I rarely would shoot in a brand new location that that hasn't aged or settled into its environment. Um, I sort of like how things fit into a place. And if, unless the location does that on some level, there isn't a history there, I probably wouldn't be interested in it. Um, you know, I was once doing a shoot in Phoenix, Arizona, you know, and I remember scouting the city of Phoenix, and I couldn't find anything that I really felt worked. I mean, there was the Biltmore Hotel and a few other things I thought were great. But what I found really great was the landscape around Phoenix. I mean, the part that was untouched. Um, and that's where I ended up shooting the picture. Sometimes... Often if I'm in Paris or in London, I can find hundreds of locations that appeal to me um, because they have this history to them. Mm -hmm. The man or somebody has interacted with this location for for quite a while, and, it, and you can feel the patina of the interaction of the two, um, and that's what, that's what really I like. Yeah, which, yeah, like you said, that's getting a lot harder to do in America with the it is. cardboard stores and big box stuff. Um. Yes, and also, you know, American cities, um, they build these skyscrapers and they tint the glass to mm -hmm. keep the light out. Mm -hmm. um, in Europe, luckily, still the older buildings are all oriented and, and the windows are such to let the light in. And um, that's, a, that's a huge distinction. Yeah. You know, they act in European buildings, at least, you know, the ones that I'm attracted to, the light is like a portico. It's like this entryway. Um, um, and really wonderful things happen with the light. Well, in most new American cities, it's again, it's to keep all the light out and to keep the temperature and the humidity and the light all controlled from the inside. Yeah. Um, looking at... Just the overview of your work and your your career. Um, I'm I'm reminded of Chuck Close uh, has this quote about photography about how like it's the easiest medium to become competent at, uh, but it's the hardest medium to have a unique vision for that people when they look at your images it's recognizably your image and it's not confused with somebody else's or it could be anybody else's and you. Your work is one of the few that, when you look at it, it's obviously like a Rodney Smith image, um, and you've a attained that goal. I think that's like the holy grail for a lot of people. And so I'm, I'm curious, and I'm sure a lot of people would love some insight into how, how do you feel like you got to that point to where you could produce images that are consistently yours? Well, you know, this. this this is a very interesting question. You know, I, I, I teach a workshop um, infrequently, but every once in a while. And all these photographers come to the workshop, and they do not have a voice at all. Um, well, some of them do, but it's pretty minor. Um, and, you know, there's this discussion about whether it's a question of talent um, or do you have is it a question that everyone has their own voice, they just can't express it? And I'm definitely of the school that everyone does have a voice. They just don't know how to ex express it or expose it is perhaps a better word. 
um, because it, it represents enormous, there's enormous fears preventing them from doing it. I mean, you have to tap into the part of yourself that goes way, that goes really deep, and most people don't know how to do that. Sometimes, by a gift of God, somebody has that intuitively or naturally, but that's a very rare gift, and I've actually never seen it. Um, the, most often, people foil themselves. You know, they, they have all these fears and anxieties and frustrations, whether it be dealing with other people or exposing themselves or, I mean, photographically exposing themselves, their, their own fears, their anxieties, and they never get to the level that's required to really have a singular voice. I mean, that's the difference between the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who take pictures and the few who, who actually are photographers. And it's not so much, that I, from my point of view, that one has an innately more talent than the others. Now, a lot of people would argue with that, but I don't think they do. I just think they're able to tap into the deepest, darkest, or I wouldn't say darkest in any way. It's really positive, actually. The deepest part of their emotional being and let that part out. And then you never have to worry about being a second-rate somebody else. You can much more be a first-rate yourself because no one has your life experiences. No one has your feelings. No one has your thoughts. All those things are unique and special to you. So if you can reach this level, and um, I think there are ways to help people do that, um, they can begin to express the things that reside deep within them, and then all of a sudden their pictures take on a special characteristic that is unique to them, and they begin to develop a voice. I think people are, are sort of copying everybody and mimicking everybody and running around buying the right equipment and doing everything that's completely unnecessary to develop a voice. They think that's what they need to do, but it's the last thing that they need to do. Mm. If anything, they need to step back and and let something begin to emerge from deep within them. That's what will create this special voice. And it's a very hard thing to do. And I think Chuck Close's comment is right. I think photography is, particularly through the digital age, much more than even prior when there was a real craft to printing, um, that there is the most sort of facile of mediums that one can learn, even through by taking with a with a um, with a telephone, you can take a pretty competent picture. But what I mean, but, but what distinguishes one picture from another is the kind of the emotional content of that picture. Mm. Yeah, I mean, looking over your website and, and your blog, and just even like the bio that you have written on your website, there's you seem to have a really strong belief in um, analog and being disconnected from technology to a, a large degree as much as possible. So does living maybe like a slower-paced life in a lot of ways contribute to allowing yourself space for critical thought, self-examination to where you can really dig into who you are and what those feelings are um, in, in terms of like, you know, are we – it's part of the problem. We're living in such a fast-paced culture that nobody's taking the time to stop and really just analyze life for themselves, and that's you know just regurgitating this surface imagery we see. Um, well, as I said, you know, I've been doing this for 45 years, and I still use the same camera that I did when I started 40 years ago. Um, I'm very, very rigorous with my craft. I mean, I've 
extremely rigorous. Um, you know, I exposed the film very properly, and and so when the di- and I went through a, many years of really learning how to expose my film and make prints that represented my emotional psyche. I mean, I really liked dark sh- shadow detail and differentiation between that, and my prints used to represent that. And if I was much more interested in highlights, I would have done things quite differently. Anyway, anyway. I really loved and grew to really know film. And then when the digital world came along, um, there's a great aphorism, a change is not necessarily an improvement. And I've been watching the digital world very closely. And, you know, I'm kind of a consultant to Epson, and we produce digital prints as well as prints that are done in the darkroom. You know, we scan the film and then make really beautiful large mural prints. So I I definitely, and, and and everybody who works with me is very digitally competent. But I, for myself personally, I haven't seen any reason to change. Personally, I don't really like the digital cameras. Um, I don't like seeing the picture immediately. And as I said, I never shot Polaroids. I like the experience. I like to focus on the experience of making the picture, not on what the picture... Every single time everyone stops and looks at the picture, you've interrupted the whole process of making the picture. That would be a terrible thing for me. I like to just go through the whole process, focus on the thing I am doing, and I like the mystery of not knowing exactly what's on the film. Um, I, I, I don't really like the digital process that much. Now, it may get to a point where I can't get film, which is sort of beginning to happen already, or I can't do the thing, and I may have to make that change. But at this point, I would hope actually, I have so many people, young people, coming to me who say that they really love film much better than digital, and they they shoot on film, so there seems to be a kind of a minor resurgence in film. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I'm just, you know, such a recluse that I don't engage in the world. I mean, I live in New York, so I'm pretty much, so on some level, you know, engaged with what's going on. And if I ever felt that the digital thing was so much better than what I'm doing, I would change. But so far, most people seem to really love. The pictures I make on film, and when we blow them up really big, there's a certain quality to them that people really love. Like I've had many shows at very, you know, at Brooks or um, all the technical schools, and all the students who are really technically minded love the prints. They keep saying, "How did you do this print?" You know. So um, for me, it's just that there's really no reason to change. And if anything, I was kind of in shock that just because something became new, that everyone immediately embraced it. I I think they must have felt they had to, that, you know, art directors required it or uh, the world required it or, or whatever. And quite honestly, I've never, no art directors ever required ever that I shoot digitally. And they actually kind of like that I shoot on film. Mm-hmm. So, um, Interesting. That's, that's the way it is. They all say, oh, my God, this is great. I, I like the fact that you know, I'm going to get contact sheets. I really like this. You know, so um, I'm sure that there are constraints put on people that they want this, they want that, but I think it's more important for you to tell them what you like best. Mm. Have you had any, like, low points or creative blocks in your career? And if so, like, how have you stayed motivated or how did you push through those over the years? That's a really good question. Um, My previous father-in-law was a really wonderful playwright and – very well-known American playwright. And over his desk, he used to have this little sign that said, no one asked you to, no one ever asked you to be a playwright. Um, and I think that that's really true. I mean, 
you, I could wallpaper my walls with rejections. I mean, I've over my life, I've had 50 to one rejection, um, maybe a hundred to one rejection. Mm-hmm. Um, and since it's such a personal medium, um, for me, this is not a job. This is my exposing my life and my soul and my pictures. There's no way one can take it personally. It is personal. So, and I've had many high points. I've had really good years and really, really terrible years, both from financial points of view, from creative points of view, from everything. But I just, I just must have in something in the way down deep inside me this knowledge that this is what I chose to do. No one put a gun to my head and said, this is what you must do. And so I chose this you know, freely. And when I'm really down, I just say, you know, you've got to stick with it. And there have been hundreds of times I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, um, either I have nothing more to say, or I don't want to do it. Or financially, it's been so difficult. In my early years, it was so difficult. And it's still, there's terrible years. I mean, like after 9-11, it was really, I mean, there's been many, many years when things were really terrible from a financial point of view and a creative point of view or the job, everything. And so there's like at times 45% of me that doesn't ever want to take a picture again that I'm done. And, but there's luckily there's 55% of me that wants to keep on doing it. Mm. And, um, that just sort of gets me through it. You know, Hemingway used to always talk about that. He would always stop writing the day before in some place that he wanted to continue because if he didn't have that place the next day to go to, he's not sure he'd ever pick up a pen again. But he looked, had this place where he looked forward to going forward. And um, I'm not sure I have that. I mean, I definitely can get kind of burnt out. And I think the environment or the location or the model sometimes, but um, many times it's the sense of place around me, is what motivates me to take make pictures. And so that sometimes has to be in a new place and so I can get kind of stuck like everybody else. And then I just um, have to force myself to keep on, on going. But I, after 45 years, I've kind of um, got this regimen that I, it's not perfect by any means. There's definitely problems with it. But I kind of like, you know, I'm, I don't shoot, you know, I probably only shoot, you know, 30, 40, 50 days a year, um, which is plenty, which is me with a lot of, and then you know I work on exhibitions or I do all kinds of other things as well. I'm always working around photography. I mean all the time, but I don't have to be physically shooting to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I once when I was very young, I used to collect, like, convince people to buy photography, and when nobody wanted to. And this is in the 70s. And I once went to Andre Couture's, Couture's apartment, and I was talking to him when I was buying a print for somebody, and. He told me that he would go six months or a year without ever taking a picture, hmm. um, and um, I perfectly I could understand that perfectly. I could go six months or a year without taking a picture, yet I'd still always be a photographer. Um, for other people, I know they have to shoot every day or all the time, or they feel they're going to lose it, or they're not a photographer. But that's not the way I work. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, one uh, one kind of question I had about <clears throat> specifically your work in regards to like kind of the fashion element and it ties into a, a, one of the blog posts I was reading that you wrote as we kind of segue into some of your, your blog stuff. But, um, I would love to, to talk about 
fashion photography and kind of how it relates to women and how it like, portrays them or makes them feel. Um, you, you wrote in one of the blog posts, it says, uh, you ended it, you say, in this culture, what is beauty? Is it the ability to expose yourself and pout at the camera and feel uh, that this is power? Or is it to walk very softly but have great style and carry it with ease? Um, you seem to have a bit of a reverence for, you know, just people, especially women in your work, where some fashion yeah. photography now is the kind of the opposite of that. So I'd just love for you right. to talk about that a little bit. Well, I mean, I think it's just I could talk to you for a few hours about that, but um, <laughs> I, I just succinctly and quickly, I think most fashion photography today is pretty mediocre. I think it's all about celebrity and status, and they all have the right lunch and the right they know they date the right models and they all meet the you know the right art directors and it's just like in a group that just supports itself, but it's all very mediocre. Um, I don't think that there is this great vision that drives the photographs. Okay, now having said that, that's just one thing. And I think there have been, I think fashion photography has had its periods where it was the most really distinguished in the world of photography. I think, um, you know, in the 40s and 50s and perhaps in the 60s, I think Irving Penn and Norman Parkinson and a few other people were incredible photographers, had a great vision and were quite extraordinary. I think today there's all this celebrity about around these photographers, but I think it's much ado about nothing. Mm. And I think the models are the same way. Um, you know, but I do think what is lacking in, photography, in fashion photography is not something that that's it's actually that hard to find again. I find, I, I guess I have to digress for a second and tell you a story. I probably wrote this once in a blog many years ago. This wasn't quite a fashion shoot I did, but it was close to it in the sense of the, what, what I thought was wonderful about fashion. I did, I used to, God, oh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, Coach Leather had a campaign called Descendants of Famous People. And they photographed all the grandchildren or the daughters or the aunts or whatever of well-known people. And I did about four or five of them. I, I remember did Nathaniel Boone's nephew. And I did the one I'm talk, going to talk about was Babe Ruth's niece. Um, and, um, you know, the baseball player, Babe Ruth. Mm -hmm. So, I photographed her at Yankee Stadium in, um, in New York, which is kind of the appropriate place to do it. And I didn't have a chance. Usually, I, sometimes I sometimes I have a chance to meet the person I'm going to photograph um, prior to. But in this case, she lived, I think, in Maryland or Virginia. I'm not sure. And they had a flyer up for the shoot. And I meet her the morning of the shoot, in a, you know, in a location van. Um, outside the stadium, and I meet her, and you know, I could tell that she feels really terrible about herself. She's looking down. She's kind of forlorn. She, I can just feel like she wants to just disappear um, in, into the background. I understood that she was raised in a small trailer um, in in Virginia, wherever, and she had really no relation to Babe Ruth other than the fact that she was his niece. But she came from very humble means and was really kind of almost embarrassed about this whole thing of taking a picture and just wished the whole thing would go away. I could feel all this in her presence. So I introduced myself. I tell her I'm the photographer who's going to take your picture. And if we're going to take you into this location van and there's going to be a woman who's going to do your hair and another woman who's going to do your makeup and we're going to style you and dress you and all that. And, and I said, while, while they're doing all that, I'm going to go away for an hour and go look and find the right location to make the picture of you. 
So I go away for an hour and I come back um, and I go into the location van and there's this totally different person than the person I had first met before she went into the van. She was standing upright. She looked really beautiful. She became, <laughs> I saw what a little bit of hair and makeup and new clothes and being pampered, what it could really do to not just the physical look of this person, but the whole internal emotional sense of who she was. She was transformed. I thought, oh my God, this is an incredible experience. This is a wonderful look. Look, look what fashion can do. Mm. Instead of making people feel intimidated or that they're unattractive or something like that, it can make them feel empowered and beautiful and wonderful. It's like a Cinderella story. Mm. So I take her for a few hours. I make her portrait. She's looking really beautiful. And, you know, she she just looked content and happy and I think really enjoyed the experience. Goes back to the location van, takes off all the clothes, well, you know, goes back to her original clothes and walks out of the van exactly who the person was when she first entered the van with her head down. And she goes back to the person she was. Now, I think the important thing of the story for me, it's not really a fashion story, but it is what fashion can do. It is about style and grace and elegance and feeling beautiful and wonderful and special. And it's not about being intimidated because you don't have the money to buy these clothes or you have to have this clothes or you have to have the hottest, newest, ugliest thing imaginable in order to be valuable and worthwhile that you can have a sense of style and grace intrinsic to yourself, that it comes from inside you, not from the outside. And um, the outside stuff, the accoutrements can help you realize who you really are. So that's, again, another place where personal style is very helpful. And um, I do, I do. I love shooting fashion. It actually really fits me. Um, and I like the big production of it. I like... I'm the kind of photographer that can work with 20 people around me, and it it doesn't bother me in the slightest. I sort of like it. I like the collaboration of everybody. The stylist I've worked with for years, and she'll say, you know, look at this. Oh, this person looks like great here. Or my assistant will say, oh, you should look over there. It looks really great. I love when people do that. I feel it's like this collaborative effort. Um, and I like the whole experience of it. I don't know if that really answered your question. Yeah. But... Um, I do think that women, this is, you know, I think the world is kind of so, particularly now, are so full of ironies. I think, you know, that most women would not agree with me about this at all, but I think it's been a real give and take for women in the last 25 years. And I'm not sure that they've been given more than, than they really wanted. Yes, they've achieved incredible power to be sort of equal to men. They, you know, they're now working on getting the same rewards as men financially. They've achieved great status. And I think all that's wonderful. But I always thought, even though my father was a very powerful person, he, you know, as I mentioned, he was a CEO of many companies and he was, people were really intimidated him. I always thought my mother was the real power in the family. Mm -hmm. He would never, she, in her own private way, controlled everything and got exactly what she wanted it, was a, it wasn't as overt as it is today. It, it was more subtle, but there was this kind of wonderful thing, quality about her, and she had this incredible life, and my father worked very hard to support her um, and so that she could do what she wanted to do. So I'm not sure what we've gained is better than what we lost. Uh, maybe it is. Probably it is. And anyway, it's not going backwards. That's the way it is. But there is something 
really wonderful about um, a kind of more graceful or delicate, maybe understated power, like that quote you gave of me, rather than the more overt one. Like when I shot Elizabeth Hurley, who was all about give it, give it to me, baby. I mean, she was, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, and versus a woman who has a real sense of herself and walks more delicately and quietly. Yeah. Um, getting into some of your blog things, uh, <clears throat> I basically just pulled some quotes, and so I was just going to kind of okay. read them and then just have you kind of maybe expand on the uh, what you were saying in those. Um, you you wrote a, a blog post called "The Lies Agreed Upon," um, and you you say uh, you talk about how many people don't. Um, or actually, this is I don't think this is a quote for you, but you talk you talk about how many people don't know what it means to be a photographer or, or the struggles photographers face in their quest for greatness. Um, so I guess can you tell me a little bit about what you think it means to be a photographer? Right. We talked a little bit about that, but um, I think, you know, one of the things was I sort of intimated or discussed slightly before was when I was very young, I didn't have a penny um, and I was really struggling. One of the ways I was able, I taught a great deal, but one of the other ways I was able to at least make a living, pay my mortgage, was I convinced people that photography was a really good investment and I would make a small commission if I would buy photographs for people. And one of the things I learned as I went around to galleries, there weren't very many at that time, or um, to people, is buying photography for people was how little the curators of photography and the art gallery directors and all these people who were sort of the professionals and experts in photography knew about photography. They basically knew nothing. They knew how to sell it. They knew how to talk about it, but they really had not a clue about really what it meant to be a photographer or what the struggles that somebody like Stieglitz or Strand or anybody who's really first rate would go through to really distinguish themselves photographically. Um, it goes back, you know, it's not so much there's the, it's not so much the financial hardships or meeting the right people or getting the right equipment or all the things on the surface. Those things, everybody has in whatever work they do, and there's really no difference. It's just a different set of rules. And Where the struggle really comes down to is the emotional struggle, and that is knowing that, you know, the old Socratic oath of know thyself mm-hmm. and learning how to come to grips and deal with the, your emotional core and being able to express and expose that onto a two-dimensional flat piece of paper um, is a very, very difficult thing. And then asking people who have not had your experiences, who do not care about you, who do not even know, like people in Russia, who don't even know anything about you or the place you live or your experiences, and say, look at this picture and think it's worthwhile. The only way you can really do that on a consistent basis, yes, you can do something kind of titillating or interesting or on a few pictures, but over a whole body of work, the only way you can really do that is if you are touching something universal, if you are speaking from your heart in a language that everyone can understand because the human psyche and spirit goes way deeper than the culture. 
And so if you are able to transcend or translate your own personal feelings and put them onto a piece of paper, that is a very rigorous and difficult thing to do and, and requires enormous struggle and turmoil on your part. That's why living kind of the artistic life is not something to be denigrated. It is a very, very difficult and very rare process that very few people not that they're not capable of doing it, but are willing to take the risks that that involves. 99% of people are not capable or able or knowledgeable enough to do it. Mm. It's not that they can't. It's just that they won't. Yeah. Um, you had another really fantastic blog post, um, and you were touching a little bit on uh, education and, and some of the things that maybe you teach at workshops and um I think photography education is in kind of an interesting place right now just because of a lot of people can learn things on the, online, but um, they're missing out on other sorts of education that you don't get in other ways. But um, the, the blog post was called Help is on the Way, and, and the quote from you is uh, you say, I have found that students are looking for answers, not questions. Uh, this all feels like much of contemporary art where it's all about surface. People are looking for a quick response to a complicated question. Modern art is like what I encountered in the English department. It is soulless, empty, conceptual, and lacking any depth. It looks good, but it doesn't wear well. So can, can you expand on that? Sure. Um, I'm just going to talk about another blog I, I wrote about. Um, I had a, kind of a good fortune to be an intern for Advanced Labs for a week in Carmel when I was in my 20s. And I noticed, you know, he used to meet people, and, and I, I noticed – First of all, I went there, but my photographs when I was very young looked absolutely nothing like his, but I learned all my technique from him and from his own system, so I was really very anxious to have a chance to meet him and work with him, and it was great. Um, and I learned every time when I would go in the darkroom with him or when I was sitting around talking to him, I would, he, I would ask him every technical question I could think of that I wanted resolved, and he was very generous and would answer me. And what I learned after this week of sort of probing and listening and having him listening and sometimes talk to other people and stuff was that he would tell you exactly what was necessary in order to do something. And basically, just generally, what he'd be saying was, like, if you want to be a classic scholar, you got to learn German, you have to learn Latin, you have to read, you have to study, you have to pay your dues, you have to do all these things. And that's how you really get to a place through experience, through testing, through knowledge, through all these different things that will get you to this place where you can be really competent and capable. And I found that nobody, although they all listened to him and they nodded their head in agreement, in the end, nobody wanted to pay any attention to him. They went off and go, they really, what they really wanted from Ansel Adams was, tell me this pill, give me this pill I can take so I can make my pictures look like yours. Or... Tell me the quick answer so I can get this, my technically learn how to do something as well as you do it. I want this in five minutes or less, you know, but I really don't want to spend all the time that's required and all the effort and work you've put into it to do this. And unfortunately, that's not the way the world is. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you sort of get what you pay for, kind of metaphorically speaking, about your craft, your technique, your vision, everything. It's not something that you can just, you know, meet the right person, do all this, take a pill, wear the right clothes, be in the right place, whatever it is, have the right camera, have, have the right, you know, equipment, whatever. That is also beside the point. The point is, 
nurturing and learning and developing a vision that is special and unique to you, learning what equipment that best represents that vision, developing it, nurturing it, working on it, reflecting on it, struggling with it. That's what's required to do it, and it's not easy. It takes years. I've never, and I've had the good opportunity to meet many, many well-known people that I really care about, whether mostly writers or playwrights or painters or people of, of great esteem, and not one of them, at least in my, my personal experience, I've never met anybody who was instantaneously successful. In my experience, everyone who I totally respect has worked years to get to that place. Yeah. Um, yeah, and which is uh, a lot of people don't want to put their work in now. It's like microwave society in a way. So that's right. I mean, it's it's it's, but it's fun to do this. That's you see, the thing is, that nobody mm -hmm. wants to do it, but when they get immersed in it, it's part of the adventure. Yeah, the journey. I don't know what. It's not such a great thing. Take some pill. Okay. This is what this is what you do, and I, you know, and you take copious notes, and in ten minutes you've learned how to do it. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Um, one kind of last question um, is: What is your favorite part? As you, if, looking back over the last forty-five years of shooting and all the travels and adventures you've had in your life, and with all the people you've met. What is your favorite part about being a photographer? Actually, that's an easy – it sounds like it's a complicated question, <laughs> complicated, but it's actually a very easy question for me because without any equivocation at all, the best part of being a photographer is going out, engaging the world, meeting people, and taking and making the picture. The, the actual product, the end result, the artifact is never as good as the experience of making the picture to me. Mm -hmm. It's always a disappointment. Now, for other people, like if I asked my wife, she would say that the, the artifact is much better than the experience. And I think many people have said that. I can make the world look perhaps slightly better than it was right in front of me. So for many people, the observer, the, the photograph is even better than the experience. But for me, the, the, man, the person who's taking the picture or making the picture, the experience of making the picture is the reason why I'm a photographer. I love the interaction with the world, meeting people, engaging people, being a part of the world, having it being sunny, rainy, cloudy, overcast, dealing with all of the, you know, all of that, and somehow having something wonderful immersed from it. That's what I love about being a photographer. Um, and that's why being in the studio all of that has no appeal to me. It's, it's engaging the world we live in, having an excuse to participate in it in a kind of really positive and wonderful way, saying yes to life over and over again, despite how many hardships you may have. That's the part that I really love. Wow. That's uh, a good note to end on, I believe. So I am um, very appreciative of your time no, and your wisdom. It's very nice to talk with you. Um, Hope I get a chance to meet you in person someday. Yeah, I would absolutely, absolutely love that. So that if you come to New York, call me. Okay. Yeah, I will definitely, definitely do that. So, um, thank you so much. I um, oh no, it's it's really nice to talk to you, and good I luck to you. Yeah, thank you. I uh, I greatly appreciate it. So there's a lot of people that are excited to <laughs> to hear the podcast. So they a lot of you have a lot of fans out there. Oh, that's nice. Really, I, you know, it's funny. I just saw last aside. I live such a kind of reclusive life. I, this is very nice for me because I really don't know. 
<laughs> I really don't know that much about how, how people think or respond. So that's that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, take care. How's the weather? They're great. Uh, yeah, it's good. It's warm. It's been in the seventies the past two days, so it, we have yeah, pretty mild the, winters here. Yeah, you do. So. It's in the fifties here, but I think next week it'll be in the thirties. So. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Well, take care and thank you again very much. Yeah, not a problem. Thank you.